What's up, guys? Welcome to the Nurse Podcast with your host, Matt Chartrek, and myself, Peter Fendera. This nursing podcast where we tackle current health news and hot nursing topics, one conversation at a time. Welcome to have you guys here. You can have a good time today. We have a special guest on today. But don't forget to check us out on YouTube. Check us out on Spotify, Instagram. Follow us everywhere. Give us the like. Give us a comment. We're also starting up a new Patreon. So coming to you guys soon. How's it going, Matt? Good, man. I'm just kind of really admiring your hair because you don't have headphones on. So if anything, please, guys, give five stars for Petey and his beautiful hair. Uh, but today we have a special guest on, and I'd like to welcome Tori Meskin. She is a professional nurse of 70 years. She is actually a, a podcast host of the Nurse Tori Selfie Podcast, amateur wifey, work enthousi- workout enthusiast, mm-hmm. healthcare blogger, and now she is training for a family nurse practitioner. If you want to follow her, IG handle is at nurse.tori, and her podcast is at selfie underscore podcast, and that's C-E-L-L-F-I-E. We love medical puns here. Tori, how you doing? I'm good. Thanks for the intro. Thank you. Thank you for having me, you guys. So, Tori, did you start off as a nurse, or did you have a career prior to to nursing? I was a nurse right off the bat. I went to University of Arizona, Bear Down. Yay for all my wildcats out there. Um, I, I knew I wanted to be a nurse right away. That was, it was definitely always my goal. Um, and I talk about this a lot. It was not an easy process for me. Um, I was the person that literally could not get in. So uh, I finally got in after about three and a half times. And then I, it took me about eight months to land my job. I've been a nurse now for seven, eight years. And we were actually on hiring freezes back when I was getting hired. So um, I landed my first job in a level four NICU at a children's hospital in Southern California. And I worked there for, I've been there off and on for about seven years, but there's been a lot of things in between. But yeah, um, I've been primarily NICU my, most of my career um, and found a love. I loved the micro preemie world. There's a lot of specialty things that I, I feel very fortunate. I worked at the first hospital where the quote-unquote small baby unit was created and fashioned and the idea and the theories behind it were established by, um, her name is Mindy Morris, she's a nurse practitioner, and Dr. Solomon. Um, They crafted a specialty, basically kind of growth program and or um, care plan for the micropremies. So I worked at the hospital where that started. And then um, I also work surgical, uh, pre-op, post-op. We do pretty much anything under the sun for any baby born um, and up to a year. So a lot of our babies are with us up to a year. Um, Beyond that, they usually go to the PICU or to the floors. Um, Yeah, so I started there and then I did a bit of travel nursing in uh, the Southern California area as well. and then now I'm actually critical care float poles. So I work CVICU, um, PICU, oncology, NICU, and then sometimes the floors when they need me there. So, yeah. Very well-rounded. Um, I'm very actually curious about the whole NICU life because I have never had anybody tell me much about it. And I really don't know a lot of nurses that work in a NICU. So can you kind of describe your life in a way and just kind of tell us maybe a, a slight you know, like tidbit about your shift. Yeah. So 
Um, it kind of starts at the foundation of what kind of NICU you work in. So there's level, there's four levels of NICU, one being more of a nursery all the way up to level four, which is your children's hospital, university hospitals, ECMO centers, um, consult centers. So I have been, most of the, the NICUs I've worked in have been level three, level four, where we do surgeries, um, micropremies, uh, a lot of high risk pregnancies and things like that. So your day comes on pretty much like any, uh, we get one, two or three patients, um, a shift just depending on the acuity. And we do work with babies, you know, as small as 350 grams, you know, um, we, I would say the level of care or your, like the nursing skills take time. I would say it took me about three years to really feel com comfortable, like somewhat comfortable. And even now, you know, babies, babies are very resilient, but they're also very reactive. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're taking off a CPAP mask, just anticipate a bradycardia and a DSAT right away. You know, that's just how you, you just learn, you know how to work, you learn diligently, um, we be, you learn that you're very close with your RTs, you know, when you're working with a 350 gram person and your ET tube is millimeters, you know, you're not doing anything without them. So, um, I feel very fortunate to have worked in places that have been, you know, very supportive of sort of like, I don't know, the whole team, meaning nursing, RT, doctors, um, you know, and I feel like we're getting very cutting edge with the NICU population. You know, we've learned a lot about neonates and babies and growth over the past, I'd say like 30 years. So many things have changed. Even me as a nurse, I've been a nurse for eight years and so many things that we do now are very different uh, than we were doing even a couple of years ago. So uh, it's a very progressive unit. We're learning always. Um, I don't feel like there's a day I ever come on and I'm not learning something. Um, and it's also a different unit in the sense of we are often with our patients for months. And so I, I would say a big different aspect for us is really our relationships with the parents because obviously, you know, babies can't verbalize things. They can tell you things, you know, with their vital signs. They can tell you things with um, how they react to things. There's a lot of things they can tell you, but from a verbal aspect, the way we really do that is with parents or the caretakers, or the foster parents or whoever you're working with. Um, so we develop those relationships really strongly, which I really love and I value. I mean, I still have some parents that I talk to now and my oldest associate, she's turning seven this year, which is crazy. Um, I grew her from like 350 grams. I'm like, it's just, you know, it's really cool. Like I literally helped save your life many times. So it's cool. It's a, it's a unique part of the world. I would say it's very boutique. Um, everything you do really affects the projection of their outcomes. Like literally one thing can change a baby's projection for the rest of their life. So it's very, you, you do have to be very diligent. You have to be thoughtful, mindful, you know, understand how the brain and the heart and the lungs are affecting everything, you know, your volume loads, your uh, heme dynamics. Um, you know, if we're going to transfuse, why are we going to do that? Because if we, do transfuse, we're potentially going to give the baby a head bleed, uh, which could potentially result in CP. So there's a lot of things, but then if we don't transfuse and we don't get their hemoglobin levels up, you know, so there's a, so many complex things when you're talking about um, growing a human being. So 
Yeah, it's really cool because when I got out of nursing school, I, I wanted to go into to the NICU. So like you telling me all this stuff is, it's like, I'm super interested. Like I'm kind of thinking about like even like switching jobs right now because yeah, uh, when, I, when I graduated, I just wanted to do NICU, but there was no NICU jobs available. So I decided to do just a cardiac ICU. I, right. I knew I didn't want to do anything neuro related. I, I hated neuro. I still hate neuro. But like the one thing that, that really like hits home is like when you mentioned that, you know, these, these babies are so vulnerable coming into this world that it's like you said, the, the ET tube, it's not inches, not centimeters. It's like literally millimeters. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. When we, when we pull an ET tube out, it's by like 0.5 or like by, you know, or when we're, you know, whatever you're doing, everything is like by literally micro, micro of everything is how we <laughs> measure everything. So it's yeah. Crazy. Yeah, it's a great, it's a really great thing. And it's actually interesting because you and I, we were talking, talking about this prior to coming on and, you know, the male presence in the NICU world actually is, it's so nice. I mean, we have some of the best male nurses. Uh, I think they bring a really strong element of cr critical thinking and tenacity and just sort of like, honestly, humor. Like, it's kind of nice have like the male nurses are great because they get down to work they get down to business they get your stuff done and their support system in a different way and they're just you know it kind of brings that element i really so i love my male nurses especially in the NICU. when when you say millimeters on the the et tube when you get do you guys do a chest x-ray for like these little babies or how do you guys verify placement yeah so okay that's actually kind of funny now that i'm in critical care flow well i can understand all these things okay so for ET tube placement, the goal is for most NICUs, I'm say not every NICU is like this, is to do one x-ray and do an adjustment. And if you need maybe to do another one, do another one. But we really try to limit the amount of x-ray exposure we're doing to our babies. And to be honest, they do. I think they change the settings on the x-rays to kind of like make it a little less um, exposure. Radiation. But yeah, so what we'll do is they come in, you know, do the x-ray, check our placement, um, and if we need to do another one. However, for OG tubes, NG tubes, all that, no, 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 no. Mm -mm. Mm -hmm. You do it with air. Air and listen. Um, we do not check with, with, with a chest x-ray. And it's funny because I had a kid just the other day in PICU who does check with x-ray, and it was on a one-year-old, and I was like, wait, why, why would you do that? And I didn't realize, like, I couldn't start, you know, like, I was, like, talking to the doctor. I was like, oh, yeah, like, I, I dropped the tube. Like, we're good. And she was like, did you get an x-ray? And I was like, why would I need an x-ray? <laughs> and then I was like, oh, okay, yeah. Different unit, different policies need to do that, you know? So it's interesting. Yeah, because, like, working with adults, it's like x for, for like, everything. Like, you know, you just, you just did the, like the NG tube, you know, x-ray. And then you just, again, another x-ray, you just ET tube x-ray, like it vomits x-ray. It's literally, <laughs> do we run these tests? Like, like nobody's business sometimes. Yeah, no, we, uh, at least, at least in the main, my, the NICU where I work primarily, we really try to limit it as much as possible. So, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And for NICU, do you guys have any kind of like extra, uh, like accreditations or any kind of, um, like, you know, some place require ACLS, um, there's like yeah, a okay, cows yeah. for peds. Yeah. Okay. So the, the main things you need BLS NRP, which is the neonatal resuscitation program. So NRP basically is, um, it's designed to help you come in, in a delivery and, um, resuscitate a baby who would be down for any reason. So, you know, that's everything. And that's a, kind of a fundamental issue or a thought in NICU's airway is everything airways everything you know typically when your baby is decompensating usually 
it's your airway, unless it's a complex um, cardiac issue, which is a completely separate issue. But NRP is the big one. So um, a lot of places now, which I really like, are doing um, actually yearly called CET trainings where we do practice mock sims with um, doing NRP and implementing it. So, you know, God forbid your doctor isn't there, you know how to, you know, properly bag a baby and, you know, you know how to work through SOPA and make sure your, you know, airway placement, keep checking all your equipment, making sure everything's good. So NRP is a big one. BLS, um, the place where I work, I work at two different facilities. One NICU requires PALS and the other one does not. The one that does require PALS is because you potentially float to um, um, bigger people units. So any like of the pediatric setting. So that would be appropriate for that. Um, and now a lot of NICUs, which I really love, and um, I'm actually going to be taking it for the first time this year, are requiring stable which is a newer one, which I happen to think for a lot of our babies in the NICU setting is a lot more appropriate. So it's more geared towards the older neonate who, you know, is decompensating in your unit for whatever reason, and we can't figure out why. So it's like blood sugars, airway, you know, it's like a bigger picture as opposed to NRP is more specific to like I would say more honestly delivery time and to our micro preemies and to, you know, NRP has a really good place for certain things, but then I think actually stable might be more appropriate for other settings. So yeah. Okay. So regarding, of, sorry, regarding, regarding PEEP, do you guys do like PEEP of five for babies or is that like way too high? Is, is pretty much our standard. Um, we go up to six, sometimes seven. Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, PEEP, PEEP, PIP are, are, you know, it's kind of like our, our live and die by, you know, making sure you know what they are, especially because with these little ones, you can blow their lungs so quickly. Like, a pneumo is like, you know, you have to be really careful with these lungs. So that's a big thing for us. Um, you know, monitoring, understanding your vent settings, understanding uh, certain gestations, why you have your vent settings like that, or with certain diagnosis, why you have your vent settings like that. Cardiac kiddos, you know, really understanding your perfusion mismatch and why you're ventilating this way. And, you know, if we do X, Y, and Z, how is that going to affect the brain development versus growth development? Um, these pressors, how is this going to affect, you know, the carotids, which goes up to the brain, which could cause a brain bleed. Like there's so many complex things in a level four, specifically NICU. And that's, I refer, refer to that a lot because that's primarily where I work, but you know, not every NICU is that complex, to be honest. Like some NICUs have um, far less going on and they're much more, you know, they'll have level two, level three NICUs will have high risk deliveries, some babies on CPAP and requiring some antibiotics because maybe mom had an infection. Um, you know, you're doing learning, you're working on feeds and endurance and weight gain and things like that versus a con consult center where, you know, you have several teams consulting on your baby and things like that. So I'm, I'm going to switch the energy of the conversation a little bit right now. So you mentioned that you're level four Nikki, right? So that's probably trauma, correct? Trauma, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I wanted to talk about death and dying a little bit. So as you know, when it comes to like older patients, death and dying is, it's still, it's still rough. You know, you, you have, you have the family member crying, the parent, whatever it is, right. The, um, the daughters, the siblings, and 
it's a tough time, right? But you deal with somebody that's just born, you know, it's easier to let go of somebody that lived 70 and 80 and you can say they had a good life. But yeah. this person is a few months, right? Not even person, this baby is a few months. Like how is death and dying going to nick you? And how have you been like coping with it? Yeah. Um, in my personal career, uh, I had, I've, I've body bagged, I think six or seven. Um, it's really, you know, I mean, I remember my first one, like, you know, you never forget that. Um, it's really, really, really tough because you know, you're dealing with a situation where the parents are supposed to be working through the happiest time in their life and they're supposed to be celebrating and, um, you know, oftentimes we have littles who, you know, they're born too early and, you know, even, you know, we can save up to a point, but maybe they haven't had, you know, an infection which caused X, Y, and Z, or uh, we get congenital anomalies where these babies are, you know, unfortunately they just chromosomally or genetically aren't able to survive. That's a very real part of our job. And part of that is, you know, extubating and helping and supporting families. Um, it is a balance. I think that, you know, we get in, NICU nurses, I think would agree with me on this. Like you genuinely love what you do and you give so much heart to every single patient. I think that's definitely the hardest moment you deal with as a nurse for sure. Um, and it is a very real part of it. And I think part of it for me that has been helpful is working in places where I feel supported. I do feel that my fellow nurses, the charge nurses, they just know when these shifts are coming or, you know, it's a little different if it's a trauma situation and you're coding a patient who versus a baby who you're actually self ex you're extubating, you're choosing this. But um, regardless, I feel like I've worked in places that have been very supportive. Um, we actually have, you know, bereavement. We have a bereavement um, sort of protocol, I guess you will, where, you know, we can do handprints and footprints and, you know, they're really supportive of whatever the family needs at that point. You just, you know, do they want pictures? Do they want to give a bath? There's a, a whole lot of things that we can do to allow a family to really like grieve in the way that they need to. I have had families who don't want to be there. Um, and well, I'm the baby, hold, I'm holding the baby. <laughs> I'm the one doing it as she passes. Um, it's, you know, it's uh, unfortunately a reality that we do deal with, um, you know, and it's kind of this combination, I think, of this time where we're catching these things early and we're able to save a lot of, of patients. Um, and then, you know, on the flip side, we're also dealing with, we saved the child for now, but is that is it going to be feasible long term? So um, it's interesting, you know, I mean, we it's harder when it's really unknown, when parents just really don't know the diagnosis or the baby just came way too early and there's nothing you could do. But, you know, it's leaning on the people around us as nurses and taking care of yourself. Um, that's a big part of it, you know, and, and kind of letting yourself feel it, but also, you know, you have to be resilient. Um, there's been shifts where like I had to buy, you know, take a baby to the morgue and then I was coming back the next night, you know, it's like, that's how it is. And that's in healthcare, I guess, anyway, you know, you were dealing with really heavy things oftentimes and you still show up, need to show up for your job. So. Yeah. I remember for like my rotations with like peds and, and NICU and 
like mother baby like the hardest thing for me like to like work with was kids that had abuse like one of yeah. like things that i'm always gonna like i'm never gonna forget this like a baby came in for uh was it sh- uh, shaken baby syndrome where she had like a, like a severe c-spine and the crazy thing is like like everyone knew what happened but dcfs wasn't involved yet that's like the the child percussive child protective custody that is here in illinois dcfs unless it was nationwide in our unit mm-hmm. we see so most of the, of the shaken babies uh go to pick you i would say and i've actually had a little bit more of that kind of exposure lately we the form of abuse that we would see is from you know drug addicted mothers um that does happen um and that's it's interesting it's a very weird time because a lot of times you know moms will come in they're loaded babies come out we test them they're positive and then it it sort of sparks that cascade of okay cps are we getting them involved are we doing foster care um at one hospital i feel like i see it somewhat um but not often and then my other hospital i feel like i see it more often so it's interesting because geographically i think that's a big factor um when you're talking about substance abuse and things like that but it that would be our form of of i would say child abuse that we have you know experienced we don't get necessarily always the shaken baby maybe some NICUs maybe take shaken babies but usually the PICU takes them yeah so like, yeah it's like the hardest part was like allowing because before child custody came in did, did whatever they had to do like the family was still allowed to like be, be with their baby like hold them and whatever and like like everyone knew what happened and like that's what like, killed me inside it's like this, yeah. this baby is basically has no neural reactions can't breathe on its own can't do anything because like the baby was shaken by the family. They're the ones that did this, did this to the baby. And yeah. like, we're still allowing the family to be there to interact with, with the baby, well knowing that this is the cause of it was the family just doing this this damage. And yeah, that was the most upsetting thing to me. I, I came home, I was like, like, holy shit, like how does this even work? Pediatrics as a whole, I would say that's a big factor and something that I, I didn't realize, you know, getting into peds, period, that it's a big factor, um, abuse. I, I've had uh, or seen, mm-mm. This was at where when I was working at U of A, you know, children who would come in at like six years old high on weed and just because parents wanted to shut them up and, you know, quiet, quiet them down. And that's a very real thing. And But we couldn't do anything because the chief is in charge on reservations. So our CPS has no jurisdiction there. So, you know, there's a lot of complex things that you're dealing with, you know, in the peds world when you are dealing with a very vulnerable pa- patient population um you know and sometimes it's i would imagine also being a parent sometimes it's hard because certain things that come in we automatically assume abuse and it's not always the case like sometimes they come in and you're like this is really odd but then you know it 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 most likely isn't that so it's you know there's a lot of very complex things and kids kids are actually at a certain age you know they'll tell you what happened um to a certain degree but for the shaken babies that's yeah it's a really tough one that's a really yeah. tough yeah, that's, that's, like, that's also that's also interesting how you know i actually noticed it because on a chart you usually chart interviewed alone patient interviewed alone i feel like that doesn't really matter for the elderly but for situations like that having a young child i feel like it's crucial to actually having the family step aside and i'm sure you have that where you know the child is telling you the truth of like what's going on yeah. because 
I'm 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 starting to see it. Like I had a I had a guy, he was like 92, and his son was just very awkward. And the big the long story short is he was getting social security from him, so he tried to keep him alive while the guy is on a BiPAP mask. And you know, sometimes in the ICU we like overexhaust these people, like they're on their way to heaven, and we're just like kind of holding them down with a freaking like a piece of rope while their soul is just drifting away. And like the guy takes off the mask. He's like, let me just die. And you should have just seen the son's face when this all happened. And then, then we knew that he was technically able to make his own decision because the son was making it and we let him comfortably pass. But I'm sure just to kind of wrap things up, we're talking about abuse, right? I'm sure it happens in peds and it's a lot more, it's sad compared to like the situations we see. It is sad. Um, yeah, there's no way around that. It is sad and it does happen. So I think that is something too for future nurses. You know, you just, you, I mean, every situation is different. And I do feel like I have felt lucky enough to be on units where I feel supported as a nurse. And, you know, you just chain of command and you let people know and you chart and you try and do the best for your patient, you know, in the moment you try to do the best you can every, every shift. So, so if yeah, like, like all the, like, I was going to wrap up to like NP now. So PD, take away with that okay. question. So yeah, so like we keep touching up with this like death and dying. I feel like death and dying is more of a normal occurrence in adult ICUs, which, which, which is like a, a good thing because obviously you don't want more babies dying than, than elderly. So mm -hmm. like I'm more accustomed to dying. I'm more accustomed to letting people go and I'm more okay with it because a lot of these people are in their 70s, 80s, you know, they, they, they live the life. And sometimes it's like a relief like letting somebody, you know, go, like having to like withdraw off care or change their, their code status because, you know, it's patient suffering. But like, I can imagine myself being in a NICU and that would be like one of the hardest things for me to do just because like, it's still like a baby, you know, like this baby could be become anybody in the world. Yeah. So like with the, with the whole adults, like I'm completely comfortable with, with, with death and dying. Like I've been a nurse for a while now, but like the whole NICU, NICU thing and like infants and children, babies, that would probably be the hardest thing for me to do in the world. Yeah, it is. It's, it's definitely, um, I would say the hardest thing. And I, I do feel like the things that get you through are your, your coworkers for me, you know, it's like those, those are the people that really help you through those, those tough moments. Um, so yeah, yeah, it is. It's kind of a weird time when, you know, the, you should be the beginning of your life and be the happiest moment of your life. And it turns into that. It's, it's really tough, but it is part of a job. Um, so yeah. Yeah, I keep seeing myself being a NICU nurse that's saying, no, we got to keep doing everything. We got to keep doing everything. We got to keep doing everything. And, yeah. You know, sometimes you just, you just can't. Mm -hmm. With, with um, everything that you're mentioning in NICU, I'm actually wondering, so what made you, you know, make the leap into becoming a nurse practitioner and leaving the bedside? And are you planning to actually returning to the NICU as an NP or are you going to take a different route? Yeah, that's a big question. Um, so... I think I hit a pretty big burnout moment, I would say around year six. Um, this was after, you know, having worked full-time as a NICU nurse and done some traveling. And I just hit a point where I was just feeling, it wasn't necessarily the patient population or like being a NICU nurse. It was just the grind and the intensity of the hospital and just, you know, feeling I don't know, I just had hit this really deep burnout moment. And I started realizing, you know, okay, thinking about where do I see myself long term? 
So I really gravitate to women and women's care and to babies as well. And when you're choosing, I knew that I wanted to take the next step with my education just because I feel like while I am burned out of the hospital setting and the intensity, I'm not burned out of the responsibility. So for me, the next step is, okay, well, if I'm going to take that, I need to take the next step in my education and go to the clinician route. Um, I've never been interested. I was at one point interested in leadership or going into that way, but I think for me, I'm much more interested in health and prevention and or some sort of that type of care. So I decided to go family route um, versus NICU or neonatal nurse practitioner. Reason being with the neonatal nurse practitioner, primarily you will be working in acute settings. You're gonna be working in the NICU, um, you know, and your role is very different, um, which I just feel like, you know, you're gonna be intubating, putting in lines, you're gonna be doing um, much more hands-on, attending the high-risk deliveries, making the tough calls, and I just, Think for me right now, I would prefer to be on more the clinician side of helping and supporting women, maybe even prevent the pregnancy issues or being a support system or becoming more on the pediatric level and being more in touch, I guess, with the community setting. Um, that's just where my heart is drawing a little bit more. So um, I chose family nurse practitioner. It was after a lot of thinking, um, you know, I thought NNP. PNP, pediatric nurse practitioner, or even women's health, but I didn't want to niche down too hard in anything. I kind of want to keep it open and even looking through job searches, to be quite honest, FNPs are a lot more, there's a lot more opportunity. So I don't quite know exactly where I'm going to be niching down yet. Um, I do know family really interests me. I really love it. I mean, even going into uh, my new unit as a float pool nurse, I'm, I'm sort of seeing a lot of the kids that maybe I would even be referring to the hospital. So all these RSV, pseudomonas, you know, all these kids potentially that I would be maybe seeing in an urgent care, whatever, you know, wherever I want to be. Um, I'm just thinking a little differently, diagnosing, getting to the down to pathology of like what's going on, understanding a little bit better. I'm, I'm fascinated by that. So um, that's kind of the reason I took the route. I don't know 100% where it's going to land yet. And I kind of like that. I kind of enjoy that. Um, so that's kind of where my racing was like, as to going back for my, my nurse practitioner. I'm just ready for the next step. That's actually, that's actually really good. I like that. And I've been thinking about potentially going more like, you know, further to school. I tried to shadow a CRNA. Yeah. As of now, I'm enjoying what I'm doing now. And as we're speaking, so we'll see what the, what the future holds. Right. So taking your 70 years of hard work, thank you for all that, by the way, and just looking at healthcare as a whole, looking at COVID and just seeing all this shit that's happening. Like what's one thing in healthcare that you would change if you can? Well, you know, I think if there's one thing that COVID has done, it's really opened up our eyes to, uh, what healthcare in general, you know? And I think, uh, my biggest thing, honestly, is access. Like I wish access for whatever reason is so much easier. I mean, Lord knows you guys, I'm, we're even nurses and I bet you, you don't even know 
how to access X, Y, and Z if you needed to. Like, it's, it's frustrating. Like, we switched over insurances, and I'm like, why is it so complicated? I basically want to become, I'm hoping, a practitioner that makes it easy, right? Explains things, because half the time I go in, if I'm sick, like, I feel like I'm having to navigate it. Why am I having to tell you that I need these labs drawn? Why am I telling you where to go for X, Y, and Z? You know, so I feel like, for me, with healthcare, it's becoming a little bit more of an innovative person you know we are in the 20 we're in 2020 right now it's like why is this so complicated um i don't know i i hope that things you know as far as access and care and you know compassion and getting back to caring for people and treating them as humans and you know there's a lot of um mistrust in healthcare to be honest and i honestly don't blame people oftentimes because you know one one person will say something and another person says another. And I think part of the reason why I started my podcast was to be able to platform and to talk about healthcare in general and see all the things that are going on and how people are doing things. And I think people need to understand dynamics. They need to understand, you know, what they're um, at, what, what resources are available to them. Um, I'm really passionate about that. And I think it's crazy because there's so many things out there, but people just don't know how to navigate it. Um, and I do think it's really frustrating. And especially right now, I think, you know, we're in a place where I think that the medical community has finally kind of come together and really, I've seen a lot of people band together with COVID if there's one good thing that came out of it. Um, I've, I do feel like that's kind of becoming a forefront for us. And you know, I feel like now more than ever, I just know I'm meant to be a nurse practitioner and to be able to help people in a way that, you know, they don't understand or comorbidities. Like there's so many things going on and um, I'm just really feeling the draw to that. And I just feel like as a whole, we're going in the right direction, um, but it's going to take the right people in place to really implement and make some good changes. And I hope that we continue to work in the right way um, I love the medical world. I love healthcare. I think there's so many amazing things going on here and, um, you know, just making it a little bit more accessible to people and understanding things. And yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Like access and like availability is like, like a prevention is, is giant keys. Cause if you go on your state website, like, like I even know my state had a website until like, you know, until I was in, was in college, you know, in nursing school where we actually went on our state website and we actually went to like the healthcare tab and actually saw what the, what the county or, or the state actually provides. And they provide a, a whole bunch of things, like different kind of, uh, different kind of clinic clinics, different kind of testing, different kind of women's health things. And I, I had no idea about this. There's like so much of it, but, 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 you know, what's the use of it if you, if nobody even hears about it, you know, it's kind of like almost pointless. Yeah, and getting to people where they need to be. Well, you know, that's another reason too. I get this question a lot of like the social media stuff and I'm like, you know, uh, to me, I feel like having um, a presence on social media is very important uh, for the healthcare community. I think it's really important because guess what? That's where all of our patients are. And that's where everyone's at is on platforms. So um, I think, yes, there's a tasteful way to do it and the right way to do it. But I think having a presence and being able to, show people like, Hey, like I, this is my lifestyle. This is how I'm eating. This is what we're making. Like, I love being able to do that because as a nurse practitioner, when you come into my office, you know, I'm actually doing those things. And not only that, I want to show you, or, 
you know, this is my journey as a nurse. Like, this is how I did it. These were my failures. Like, we're all people. And, you know, can we get down to the level of, like, letting people, uh, to having people understand it? And get, don't get me wrong, social media is not for everybody, but I do think having a big presence or having, um, you know, relatable talk for people is really important. Um, you know, here's the reality too, is COVID has really brought to presence the fact that it's gotten us back to medicine where we don't know everything. We don't know this. We're fighting this and we still don't have all the answers, but guess what? We're going to do the best we can to figure it out. And some of the best, most wonderful minds are trying to figure this out. We have people in overdrive trying to fight this thing. And I'm like, well, that's what medicine is. Like when you get really down to it, when you get down to healthcare and medicine, it's like, we don't have the answers for everything. I mean, things that we say that we're doing right now, 20 years from now, they're going to be different. That's a fact. Like we're going to be doing things right now that will be completely out the door 20 years from now. But in this moment, this is what we know. And this is the best we're going to do. And, you know, we're going to try and get you to the most foundation of health and make you healthy and give you the resources that you need in your own personal health. You know what I mean? That's exactly like the one, one stigma with like, hospitals and medicine and like healthcare is you go into the hospital and you expect to get like cured like there's a like we have we have cures for things we really don't have a cure for a lot of things out there it just we have different treatment modalities and ways we we treat certain infections diseases we don't cure you we just treat them and hopefully your body could fight it off itself because there isn't like you can't put a vaccine for everything we don't have a special drug that's gonna you know cure your your illness you know it's like you said it's just like a trial by error kind of thing we kind of try it out if it works great we'll keep doing it until next oh, better yeah. thing comes even if you give it to someone and they're cured of it the next person comes in won't be you know i mean i that's just the reality everyone's different everyone's microbiome is different everybody's reaction to things is different everybody's you know some people are healthier than others um you know it's it's just it's all you know and kind of i get people you know do kind of like what you're saying they want the pill, the pill is what you go to, right? It's like in your head, you're like, give me something because I have something and I want you to fix it. And sometimes it's, it's more than that, right? It's like, there's a lot more complexities and getting people to really understand that and kind of, you know, becoming more, I think in the nurse practitioner realm and PA realm, I think it's on a little bit on us just to tell people like, you got to put in the work. Like if you want to get better and you want to do this, like you're sick right now, but like, let's look at the big picture and let's get you healthier in a better way. And that's kind of where I'm hoping to venture. It's uh, good because like you're young, like one of the issues I see with like healthcare or, or government or like state run programs is a lot of people that are running these programs or running these, these facilities, they're, they're older, they're like really old. And that's not necessarily a, a bad thing, but I, uh, there comes a point where you got to pass the torch on because mm -hmm. at, at a certain point, the seven year old person is not going to be able to, grasp social media or grasp marketing or, or be able yeah. to relate to to us and the passion yeah. torch it, it's hard it sucks because we all like control we, we like being in our position you know it's it's like me giving away my job to, to another nurse like i feel like i could do it better and that's kind of the stigma that everybody has that that i i could do it the best you know it's not necessarily always a thing you could do it great the next person could, could do it great as well but the fact that you got to pass that torch you know sometime before it kind of kind of gets you know unorganized and you're not and mainstream anymore. relatable yeah i mean relatable too it's a big part of it is uh you know being able for, for your people to really understand you know you as and us in healthcare and things like that so i hope that we can we're going there slowly and i feel like these kinds of things like podcasts and you know social various platforms and you know i think it's important 
right now. And hopefully we, so many great ideas here, guys. Great conversation. Now, hopefully this opens up a can of worms to people where they start taking accountability for themselves. And, you know, we are the most trusted profession. Maybe patients, they'll find platforms like this and they'll listen to us more because you know how we say that we want to pill for everything and we like a quick fix. Well, maybe doctors are starting to see that trend and maybe they're just burnt out by patients and they stop, they stop having, you know, there's compassion fatigue. Maybe they have compassion fatigue where they don't want to tell patients, Hey, maybe you should diet for diabetes. And instead they're just like, here's the damn pill because I know you're not going to do the, do the work. So you I, never, you never know, you know, I'm just trying to be the devil's advocate and thinking maybe doctors are burnt out themselves with what's going on. Yeah, I would agree. I do think there's a lot of burnt out feels, I think just in, in some part of the medical field. Um, I would agree with that. I mean, I had one doctor, this was kind of maybe one of my sparking moments. Um, I had, I was working on the floors and I was, I'm not taking care of this particular patient. I was in the room with another one and the doctor was discharging a female nurse. I think she was or a female patient, 15 years old. And I think she had like PCOS or some sort of ovarian issue. Mind you, she was laying in bed eating McDonald's and sucking down a Gatorade, okay? And he comes in and the, the medication he prescribed was um, a birth control. And the mom had never given or dealt with birth control ever. Mind you, I'm a female. I was on birth control for many, many years. So the thing, he, he basically prescribed it to her and said, the only side effect is that she may have some mood swings. And mind you, she's 15 years old, okay? And the mom was like, he literally handed it to her. He was like, okay, good. Like, nice to meet you. Bye. That's literally what the exchange was like. And in my head, I'm like, okay, so you just prescribed a medication that could potentially cause this girl to have not only mood swings, but weight gain. Like, there's so many things. My mind was baffled. I mean, the amount of things that I went through with my own experience with birth control was insane. Not to mention the fact that we're not talking about her health. We're not giving her references to OBGYNs. We're not giving her references. Like, I was just so, like, baffled by the encounter. And I was like, this is the problem. This is where we're at. Like, this is why we, I just feel so passionately that we need to get to the root of things and give people accurate information. Like, is this the best solution, birth control? No, it's not. A better solution would be, let's get down to the fundamental of why it's happening. What, why are her hormones off? Let's get her diet adjusted. Let's get her exercising. Let's do all these things. And yes, that is an adjunct and that's very important, but uh, it can't, th that pill isn't your solution. We need to, you know, don't get me wrong. My brother, I've, on my podcast, he came on, we're very open about this in my family. My brother's bipolar and he needs his medication. Like 100% my brother needs to take his medication every day. He's sober now. He knows that we have like a whole great episode on that. But so I'm not saying that I'm not a believer in meds. I'm not a believer in like a fix in a quick fix. Like, trust me, there are moments when, you know, if someone's in crisis or you're doing that, or you need something absolutely we live in the 21st century that's why modern day medicine is the way it is but we also need to think about this other fundamental the other fundamental parts of it so yeah so that's my tangent i was not anticipating to go here with you guys no it's perfect because like like you said like people come in and expect to take a pill and like this pill does solve this one issue but then this pill also comes with certain side effects and then they take another pill because it's 
his medication is, is making them, them nauseous. So instead of birth control, now they're getting like two pills and then that pill is causing another reaction. Now they're like on three or five pills, you know, instead of like, like hitting the, hitting the core or diet exercise, maybe a change in lifestyle might've, might've solved these issues or, or made them or made this, this illness or disease more bearable and without patient be able to live without any kind of extra artificial medication. Yeah. I mean, I have a great example. My dad's uh, eight years old this year. He's, I think he weighs like 165. He, up until COVID, working out every six days a week. Um, and he eats really healthy and he still has high blood pressure. So I'm not saying that like, you know, I mean, he's, he, for, for where he's at, very healthy. I'm like, I hope that I am like that when I'm that age, but he still has high blood pressure because that's genetic yeah. in that, in our family, that's how it goes. So, you know, this is, it's a balance of like, let's talk about the full picture and, you know, so anyway, it's, it's interesting to see and I hope that, you know, providers are all feeling this way too. More providers. Yeah. I kind of wanted to see what you, you guys think about whole COVID and wondering if nurses are going to be rewarded finally and we're going to be more respected. But since we're talking about working out and maybe there's nurses that want to get more in shape, you have seven years of experience. How do you stay fit and healthy as a nurse? Do you have any advice for those or nursing students that are struggling and, yeah. you know, on a beach bot or some shit? <laughs> okay so um i'm not nearly as good as i used to be actually right now I, I do feel like covid has done a thing or two but um okay so i mean for me honestly working out at this point i'm 31 years old and i do it for my mental status more than anything it's more like a, a relief um i'm also i ride horses my mom's a horse trainer so i i need to be outdoors i need to be doing something um i'm also severely like a, I'm so ADD. It's ridiculous. So I like doing things and I think getting active is part of that. Um, I have done, I did do a muscle contest back, I think it was 24, 25 when I did it. So as far as understanding the body and lifting and things like that in your diet, that particular moment um, was definitely one where I realized how much your diet affects your body. Um, at that point, I had cut out um, pretty much everything. I literally ate, you know, it was chicken, um, some sort of fish, um, carbs were like rice and oats. And then I ate quite a few eggs and veggies. Veggies was a big thing. I had cut out dairy, most fruits, um, all powders, um, no ketchup, mustard, like some mustard, but I got really creative in my cooking and, you know, you start using things like herbs and, lemon acid and you cut out the all of the um sodium and let me tell you with that along with drinking nothing but water your body will i mean the transformation i had over a couple months was insane and primarily it was because of diet um working out wise i personally love i mean i haven't been doing it as much but i love lifting um my brother and i would say my husband as well are so somewhat of gym, gym buffs. So I'm kind of surrounded by it. I tend to be a little bit more on the hit. I love hit workouts. Um, so, you know, doing stressful, getting my heart rate up for, let's say like five minutes and then doing like a minute rest. I'll do like stairs, run some stairs and then do some squats and lunges. Um, 
that's more my style. I'm not so much, I know a lot of people really do like, like classes. I think classes are great for people who love the structure. Um, I'm just more of like a free bird. I like being able to kind of, you know, go on a run and then maybe go do some lifting the next day or, um, it's definitely a mind release. And I do feel like it's a little hard right now because obviously we're in this situation, but we do a lot of prison workouts. <laughs> we do a lot of the, you know, sit-ups and push-ups and, um, doing some running around the neighborhood, um, you know, that kind of thing. So. Yeah, that's cool. Cause yeah, luckily my, my buddy, he missed the gym so bad. He built like a rack out of wood. So oh, we've been, yeah. So it's clutch. We've worked out basically in there and he's got a bunch of weights. We have like up to 315 pounds of weight. So like we could kind of lift heavy. We could pretty much lift heavy on, on yeah, days, so. yeah. My husband's actually pretty lucky. He has a buddy that they have been working out together since day one and they're doing the same similar kind of thing. So it, it's definitely good. I think, it, you know, the other thing too is I've been listening to a lot of podcasts lately and um, I don't remember who it was. Maybe it was Ed Milet show or something, but they were had on a guest who basically said something to the effect of you every single day, you need to stress your body out to a point get your body going, get your heart rate up, stress it out because it basically triggers your, sur your survival mode. It triggers your body's like mitochondria and gets everything going. And if you're basically putting yourself in a situation where it's uncomfortable, right? You're feeling like I'm uncomfortable right now, but I'm going to push through it. The mortality rate goes up like insane, you know, so we're thinking like, I, I think athletes, I think people that are pushing themselves and are at their peak, you know, and you just watch them age and they age so well. And, you know, I'm a big believer in that getting uncomfortable and doing hard things. And, you know, I do, I like, I like pushing myself. I would say, uh, three days a week is where I'm at. I like how you say like stress and all that. Cause that's like what, you know, me and Peter have the whoop band and it takes in your recovery, your heart rate variability, and then your strain level throughout the day. And it tells to get that what's up you're wanting to get one you guys should peter throw it a discount code so you get a month free <laughs> um but um but, but basically like this tells you hey what is the optimal strain you should have so if you slept eight hours and you have like 90 percent recovery your the whoop band will tell you hey you could exercise a lot more because you should stress your level out to the optimal level what it could handle because it's good for the cardiovascular system yeah, it's great. I mean, I, I love that kind of stuff. I mean, the whoop, I, I know my husband's a CrossFitter, so he's all into the, the whoop. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like, like when it's, it, it's cool because like it tells you like when you pull an exercise and like you, there's like so much exercise. You can do canoeing, you can do running, like, and it calculates how much strain you, you took on based on your heart rate variability. And it tells you like you're at like 10.4 strain, 8.6. 8 and like the way you sleep, it tells you how well you slept, how many times you got disturbed. Like Matt said, it, it tells you how much strain you could take on. And then you just add your strength during the day because it, it's like a second by second. It, you're always wearing it. Like yeah. you can shower with it, you can swim with it. It's, it's always on my wrist. Except that, when it charges, it has like a little box you put over it and then it just charges on your wrist. That's something so we you're, talk about is yeah. sleep. Sleep's a big one too. People yeah, and I was always big on like biohacking, like trying to get the most out of, out of my body and my, my body. And this is kind of like, like provides that for me in like the physical sense. Yeah. 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 I love that. Yeah. And I'm a big believer in that. I mean, as far as health and it doesn't have to be something crazy. I mean, I know a lot of people, one of my good friends also came on our podcast and she talked about her journey through 
I think she lost a total of like a hundred and something pounds. I don't know, but she, uh, she's an emergency transport nurse and she transformed her life and it's, but it was small things, you know, it, it, it doesn't have to be a big thing. I, I think that's where people get like so worked up. It's like you get to a point of, you know, you're feeling bad, feeling bad, feeling bad, and you just stop. You just don't want to do anything or you just feel nervous. And I'm like, well, okay, start small, go on a walk, you know, go do a couple walk lunges, you know, and the next day, like go on a 30 minute walk instead of a 15 minute walk. You know, it's just like, it takes little things and I think it's, you know, it's different. It's a different picture for everyone, what they have accessible to them and things like that. So you make it work. And I like how you also, I like how you also mentioned that you work out for your mental state basically. And that's what I really enjoy myself. Cause I feel like sometimes my mind, it's, I don't know if it's because I'm an empath, I'm running a thousand miles per hour and yeah. exercise grounds me. That's why when I wake up and I've been doing this routine is I'll meditate, I'll stretch and I'll do like a little workout. And then I'll plan on my day. And it just, for, for some reason, exercise just gets me out of my damn head. And that's what I need so much in my life. Yeah, I think we all do. I mean, I do. I feel like that's like partly one of the biggest things for me lately is, especially right now. But, you know, I think exercise, that's like the, uh, the most immediate thing you can do for your body. That and what you put in your body. I'm really passionate about that. It's, you know, that's, that's all on you. What was your favorite cheat meal? Okay. Well, hmm, burgers. I'm a burger girl. Burger, burgers, my favorite thing. Tater tots. I actually, I've talked about this a lot. I love bar food. Like bar food. If I had to pick like a category, it's not like Mexican, Italian. No, no, no. Uh, if I'm gonna talk about cheat meals, we're gonna go bar food. Like bar we, food. uh, all of the like appetizer menu. You know, I'm all about that. Like the dips, slider. Yeah. You like beer in that case too? Yes. Let me <laughs> beer. Actually, you know what else I've been into lately is the kombucha. The spiked kombuchas, really good. Oh, right. oh spiked? Spiked? They make they put alcohol on it? All so, right. Well, new companies coming out that are having like these fabulous, like, like basically they're like a beer. It's like six percent. You know. Mm-hmm. They're really- all, all basically, um, like me and Peter's friends group. When I went out and I got a kombucha beer, basically they all like talked mad shit about me i'm like okay Shut guys no, they're so <laughs> good they're they're and honestly they're catching on big time here and the seltzer like the seltzer um there's a new brand out there called ashland and i learned about them on another podcast but the guy who created it is from my area and he basically was like i wanted to create something like a like a seltzer like um you know like not the trulies but something like that but like for male like the male and so they created Ashland and I'm like I'm here for that it's like the flavors look good it's like tangerine lime like they've got some good stuff so yes I'm I'm definitely here for that and they're less calories than a beer so yeah I'm a big Guinness guy I like I like my stouts like they have everything <laughs> I'm surprised because your hair is so light I had to I had to wrap up the show by talking shit about the hair since I made a good comment from the beginning. You know, everything comes around, guys. Karma. I never knew there was a relation between hair color and and beer preference, but maybe we can start a survey, research study. I'm I'm, going to run one. Who's going to fund it? Tori got money on it? (laughs) (laughs) All righty, guys. I think we should wrap this one up because I'm starting to get the laffies and I need some sleep. Yeah, you're going to get to bed. So if you guys want to hear more from Tori, you could check her out at www.tipsfromtory.com. 
Also check out her podcast, Selfie Podcast, and her IG handle is at nurse.tori underscore. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you, Tori. Enjoy your day. Bye, guys.